Well, good morning. Thank you. It's great to be uh, up here this morning with the opportunity to, to preach again. We're going to be in, in the book of Luke this morning. We're actually going to be in Luke chapter 2. Anybody ever heard of Luke chapter 2? Kind of the Christmas text, right? We're actually going to be in a portion of Luke 2 that's a little more probably unknown. Um, you can go ahead and turn to Luke 2. We're going to start in just a second uh, in verse uh, 22. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 38 this morning. Uh, and just before I read, I just want not to, not that we need context, but context is always good, even if we're repeating it. Luke 2, 1 through 21 is the birth story of Jesus. It's where we see um, the decree that goes out from Caesar Augustus. It's where the shepherds and, and the angels are told about the coming of Jesus. They sing glory to God in the highest. It's where we see Mary being told that she's going to give birth to a boy. And he's going to save the, his people from their sins. And he's going to be called Jesus. And we're probably super familiar with that. But then we get to verse 22. We kind of get over the, the glam of Luke 2. And we get into some unknown territory. Probably two of the most uh, unknown characters. Maybe in the Gospels. We find in Luke 2. And so I'm going to read starting in verse 22. And I'm going to read all the way through 38 this morning. This is God's word, so let's, let's be careful, be attentive, and let's, let's pay attention to God's word this morning. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, this is referring to Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, 
having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is God's word. God, would you open our eyes to the truth of your word this morning? God, help us to see you for who you really are. Help us to understand what it means to hope, to have hope in this world. In a world that trains us to set our hope on other things. God, may we fix our gaze on you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Start off with a question. Interactive question. Everybody loves those, right? Raise your hand if you like waiting. Yeah. Anybody raise their hand? Anybody dare to? Yeah. If you did, I was going to say you're lying. Because no one likes to wait. No one likes waiting. It's not fun. We, this time of year, we're exposed to all kinds of waiting. We're waiting for that Christmas gift. We're waiting for the pounds that we gained over Thanksgiving to disappear, which they don't because Christmas comes and more desserts come. We, we wait in line at concerts. We wait for our phones to charge. We wait for our food to arrive. We wait for results from a doctor. Maybe we wait for our spouse to propose to us. Maybe it's a little more surface level and we're just waiting for the weekend. Yesterday, I was exposed to all sorts of waiting. It's called traveling. When you travel, essentially all travel is is waiting. When you're flying, you get to the airport, you wait in line to tell them you're here. And then you wait in line to give them your bags. And then you wait in security line to take off all your clothes and put them back on just to get your bags back. And then you wait at the gate to get on the plane. And then what do you do when you get on the plane? You wait till you get to where you're going. And then you get to where you're going and you wait. You have to wait to get off the plane. That's the worst part, right? It's like, we've been here 20 minutes. Why can't I get off this plane? What's happening? And then you get in the airport and you wait for your bags to get there. The carousel that never starts until like 30 minutes. You're like sitting there. I'm like, this, this, the bags have to be here somewhere. Like, come on. We don't like to wait. And the reason I ask is because the first theme of Advent which Bill mentioned earlier, it's hope. Hope is inextricably tied to waiting. In fact, the Old Testament word for hope, I'm not going to pronounce it because it doesn't do us any good. The Old Testament word literally means to wait. Now, when you think of hope, you probably don't think of waiting. But today we're going to see an example, two examples of what it means to hope, to expectantly wait. Hope is, it's kind of an intangible word. You know, it's not like you leave the house and you're like, oh, I left my hope on the counter, I need to put my hope in my pocket, and then I can go get in my car and drive to where I'm going. You don't think of hope like that. You don't think, oh, I forgot my hope, i got to go back and get it. It's less concrete, and for that reason, it can be difficult to grasp the meaning of hope. And furthermore, what hope looks like your daily life. I was doing some research and I didn't come up with this definition on my own. 
Um, but one definition that stuck out to me was this. Very simple. Hope is anticipating a future that's better than the present. It's pretty simple, right? It's not earth-shattering. Hope is anticipating a future that's better than the present. When you're on an airplane, why do you hope? You hope to get there because you want to be off the plane because that's going to be better than where you, what you're currently doing. When you're waiting in line at a concert, you're, you're wanting to get in there because you want to hear the music because it's more fun when it's happening. You're waiting for something better to come. It's simple, but I think it's profound. Embedded in hope is the anticipation, longing, looking forward to something that's better than what you have or possess right now. And this morning, in this text, we see in the lives of two different people, we see an unbelievable witness of hope. And so if you noticed... Before we get to Simeon, there's a couple of verses that I want to provide just a little bit of context. We're not going to land on this uh, for too long because the meat comes a little bit later. But starting in verse, in verse 22, we, we find Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus up to the temple to present him for purification. This, is, this may sound a little foreign to us, okay? But Jesus was a Jew. He was born into a Jewish family. What did Jewish families do? They observed the law. Remember, this is still before the New Covenant, okay? New Covenant comes in Luke 20, 24, or 22, I believe. And Jesus is at the end of his ministry. Jesus is a baby. So that his parents bring him up to the temple for purification. We're, we're told all these references in Exodus and Leviticus. What a great reason to not skip over Exodus and Leviticus in your reading plan, right? Anybody ever done that? This is why we don't. There's connections, they bring, two, they bring a pair of turtle doves. Reminds me of the, of the Christmas song. Well, now you're probably going to have that in your head the rest of this morning. Two turtle doves. Now I'm not going to be able to stop thinking about that. So they present Jesus to the Lord. He's still a baby. They've just circumcised him. They've just given him the name Jesus. And then Luke tells us in verse 25... There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this is where we're going to see the first of two unfamiliar characters who are filled with hope. We don't know a whole lot about Simeon. We're told that Simeon was righteous and devout. And next, one of the first things we know about him is that we're told he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Relatively unknown man in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth, over 2,000 years ago. And we're going to see that Simeon teaches us what it means in the truest sense of the term, what it means to be a believer, to hope in Jesus. He patiently waited for the fulfillment of God's promises. There's a lot to explore here in Simeon's words. And there's tons of sermons, different themes that could be preached on this text. But I want to focus on that phrase in verse 25. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We don't find that verse, excuse me, that phrase anywhere else in Scripture. 
the consolation of Israel. Essentially what that means is the messianic hope. Consolation. Anybody ever heard that word? Anybody ever been in a consolation bracket? You know what that means? It's when you've already lost, but it's given you a chance. It's given you a hope to still win. You're in the consolation bracket. So he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, the hope of Israel. Imagine this, for hundreds of years, from the end of Malachi until now, 400, 500 years of prophetic silence. And Simeon, we're told, was a righteous and devout man who was waiting. We don't like to wait 25 minutes for our Zinberger. He was waiting 400 years. Of course, he wasn't alive for 400 years. But it's the families, the Jewish tradition, the, the stories that were passed down orally for hundreds of years. He was still waiting. There was a remnant that still believed Jesus was to come. And a Savior would come on their behalf. I mean, that, that's mind-blowing. It makes me never want to complain when I wait again. Simeon certainly was able to wait because of what we're told at the end of verse 25. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What a promise. What a promise that is. That God revealed to him, hey, you're not going to pass before you see this incredible hope. And it's going to come in the form of a baby, of a human being like you. It's kind of hard to believe. So then, what happens? Well, Simeon comes up into the temple. He came in the spirit, we're told, just at the right time, when the parents brought in Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, as we read about in verses 22 to 24. So it's kind of like, you know, the old saying, right place at the right time. I mean, this is like the peak right place at the right time. Simeon's coming into the temple, and there's Jesus. And the spirit probes his heart. There he is. There's the Savior. And what does Simeon do? He worships. He blesses God. We're told in verse 29, this is indented most likely in your Bibles. It's, it's most likely would have been a hymn, something he sang. He proclaims, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This baby is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Simeon makes the gospel global. Jesus, yes, came for the Jews, but he came for all people. He came also to the Gentiles. Praise the Lord. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And then we get to an eerie portion of Luke 2. I actually was tempted to skip it. You can't skip God's word. Verse 33, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. It's, of course, referring to Mary and Joseph. And Simeon blessed them and looked at Mary, 
and said this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, as I mentioned, we're not going to land on this for too long, but you can't just skip over it. How does this have to do with hope? Well, Simeon has proclaimed already that Jesus is the light that has come. When we see light in darkness, we see hope. Because we're reminded that it's not all darkness. Even when you see it from far off, there's hope. Yet he turns and speaks truth from the Holy Spirit to Mary. A sword will pierce through your own soul also? This is what he's saying. Jesus has come to expose our hearts. He's come to expose where our hope is set. Next week, is it next week or the week after peace? Yes, Jesus is our peace. But you know what Jesus also said in the Gospels? I have not come to bring peace, but division. Okay, maybe I'll leave that to you, Bill. I'm not going to describe that one today. What does that mean? It means that everybody has to decide for themselves what they think about Jesus. He pierces our hearts. You can't just live and say, oh, I mean, maybe he was a good guy. He didn't didn't want you to say that. He either wants you to worship him. He he, he wants you to worship him, but you're either going to worship him or you're not going to follow him and you're going to follow Satan. Sounds harsh, but it's the truth. The ways of the world. So when Jesus came and Simeon declares this word to Mary, imagine what, was, what Mary was thinking. A sword's going to pass through my own soul also? What in the world are you saying? This is a baby boy. Jesus has come to expose our hearts to reveal where our hope is set. And then we get to the second unfamiliar character. We're going to come back to these, these characters. We get to the second unfamiliar character in verse 36, and we're told there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Not often we come across prophetesses in Scripture, but Anna was, someone, was a woman who spoke for God. That's what a prophetess is. And Anna was married For seven years and her husband died. And then she was a widow for another 84. Some scholars think she could have been over 100 years old. And what does scripture tell us that she was doing? Daily. She didn't depart from the temple. Worshipping. She didn't depart from the temple. Worshipping. With fasting and prayer night and day. This is before Jesus came. This is what it means to hope. This is another example of the right place at the right time. Verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting. There's that word again. Waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
There's no doubt Anna did not have an easy life, being a widow in this day and age. Often neglected and probably exploited. She remained faithful because her hope was set in the promises of God. One commentator said this, and I I just have to read it. About Anna. Barclay writes this. She had known sorrow, and she had not grown bitter. She was old, and she had never ceased to hope. Age can take away the bloom and the strength of our bodies, but age can do worse. The years can take away the life of our hearts until the hopes that we once cherished die and we become dully content and grimly resigned to things as they are. How easy would it have been for Anna to have lost hope? Widow for decades? Yet she dedicated herself to God. And she showed us that by going to the temple daily. It's, it's hard for me to believe that she, didn't, she did this out of, out of delight and not duty. Hope became a reality for Anna when she came up at this very hour and met Jesus for the first time. She instantly knew the hope of glory had arrived. And what did she do? She gave thanks and she spoke boldly. Notice that she was part of a faithful remnant who was also waiting. In a time of great persecution, we read of Simeon and Anna who possessed a great hope. And their, their stories, they can be lost in the glamour of Christmas. The exalting shepherds, the wise men, the angels. But here we have two ordinary people eagerly awaiting the Son of God. Their whole lives, they finally get to see Him. And they worship. See, for us, it's, it's not much different. We wait. We wait too. But we have the whole Bible. We have the stories. We know Jesus came as a baby. We know he grew up. We know he had a ministry. We know he healed people. He saved people. We know he went to the cross and he died for our sins. He rose up from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And as Bill mentioned earlier, we wait for his return. That's where our waiting is. So how does that make us live? What does that change about when we walk out of these doors today and go eat lunch and go rest or whatever you may go do today? And this week, in your jobs, in your family, in your relationships that you have with your, with your kids or with your parents. What does hope have to do with all that? I want to I say two things about that. What Simeon and Anna teach us about hope. Or another way you could say it is, what does hope do? First is this, hope destroys the worldly temptation of, I need it now. Do you follow me? Hope destroys the worldly temptation of, I need it now. We live in a world where we can have 
everything we want now from a worldly standpoint. You can all get on your phones right now and go to your Amazon app and order something, and it'll probably be at your house by the time you get home. And all you have to do is click two buttons. And that's just one of millions of examples of how we can have everything now. It's a temptation. It's the world that feeds that. And we learn from Simeon and Anna, the Holy Spirit empowered Simeon to wait on the Lord. And we often think of waiting as doing nothing. We're going to see in a second that that's not true. For Anna, it was living a life of worship and prayer. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Anna's life probably looks a lot different than maybe our lives today in, in the sense of what it looks like to not be busy. She made time to go to the temple daily. Now, I'm not saying we have to, I'm using that to say you need to be in church weekly, but of course I believe that. You should be in church weekly. But we don't go to church to gain God's favor. We gather together to worship Him, for our hearts to be transformed, for to hear other people sing, even when we're not feeling it, and to be encouraged, to be convicted of our sin, but not just stay there, but be moved to all, that God would, would forgive us of our sin and give us a clean slate. As far as the east is from the west, he removes our transgressions. That's where our hope is. So hope destroys the worldly temptation of needing things now. To hope is to long. Secondly, hope delights in waiting for something, but not just anything, waiting for something that's better. Why would you hope in something that's not better than what you have? I love the declaration that Simeon makes in his, in his song, if it was a song, that he has seen a light. I can't, I can't wait for how many days till Christmas Eve when we all hold up our candles in the air. Some people think it's cliche, whatever, I'm still into it. I think it's fun. It's more than fun. It reminds us that Jesus is a light in darkness. When can you see light the best? Everyone knows this, in darkness. This world is a dark place. Our sin is dark. We all have sin. And we still run to it because we still have flesh. But guess what? Something better is coming to rescue us from that. Certainly something has come. Jesus has come to rescue us from that. But he's coming again to rescue us once and for all. Most, uh, most recently in my life, I purchased... I made a purchase that I can't say my wife was thrilled with. Uh, it was new golf clubs. It had been too long. I needed some new golf clubs. So I purchased some new ones a few months ago. And they're like, yeah, well, they're not going to ship out until February. This was back in August. I'm like, what do, why even live anymore? I have to wait till February for this? What, what is this? I mean, I could Amazon these things. No, you can't Amazon these things. Well, they came early. You know, the whole 
under promise, over deliver. Thankfully, that, that was true. But I still waited for a few months. But even in the waiting, there was delight. Which sounds kind of weird. Because when you don't have something, how can you delight in it? But when you know it's coming, man, I can't, I can't wait to see them. I can't wait to hold them. I know no one else plays golf, so this, you probably don't even understand what I'm talking about. So why did I even bring this up? But maybe you can grasp what I'm saying a little bit. Even in the waiting, I, I, I had joy. I didn't even have them yet. And this is such a silly worldly analogy. And think about the return of Jesus. This isn't a, a lazy waiting. We can wait with joy. Because his promise is much more sure than golf clubs being delivered to my front door. Every promise that God has ever made, he has fulfilled. Yet, I'll be honest, sometimes I think, is he, is he really coming back? Do I really believe that? And it's okay to doubt. And it's part of what it means to be a human, we doubt things. But we have to seek God and ask him for faith to take root in our heart so that we can trust him daily. So where do we go next? I want to give a key takeaway. This is kind of the one takeaway that I want us, want us to grab from this. And it's this. Hope that is properly fixed leads to kingdom-focused action. Hope that is properly fixed leads to kingdom-focused action. Now, what does that mean? Is that just a bunch of random words thrown together? We see this exactly from the life of Simeon and Anna. They waited, but they acted. They didn't just sit there and do nothing and say, well, I hope, hope he comes. hope I get to see Jesus one day. No, they believed it. God made it clear to them. Hey, I'm, I'm making this promise, and I'm going to fulfill it. You can put your hope in this. You can take that to the bank. Two ways we see this action play out. First is this. We wait in faith. You cannot divorce hope and faith. What do I mean? In Romans chapter 4, I mean, yes, excuse me. In Romans chapter 4, one of my favorite texts in Scripture, we read about Abraham. Okay? Picking up in verse 18, Paul writes this. I think it's on the screen. In hope, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And then skipping to verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he, Abraham, grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see the link between faith and hope? In hope, he believed against hope. I think that's saying he believed against the worldly version of hope because that, that would make no sense for him to believe that his wife could bear a child at her age or that he would be called out from his land, that the only land he's ever known, to a distant land, and that he would become 
a blessing to every family on the earth through him, through his offspring. But we're told that he believed in hope against hope. It's incredible. And I want to be careful. I don't want to make it sound like Abraham's the hero of his own story because he's not. Because his hope was in something that wasn't himself. It was in God who fulfills his promises. No distrust made him waver. Why? Because Abraham knew that he was good enough to earn favor with God? No. Because he knew God would fulfill his promise. That's what we're told in verse 21. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Because that's all God's ever done, is fulfill his promises. So kingdom-focused action involves waiting in faith. It also involves being devoted to prayer and fasting. We see this in the life of Anna. If you don't pray, then you can't possibly be longing for something better to come in the future. Because if you don't pray, then you're admitting that you have everything you need now. And that you're the one that probably earned it or attained it yourself. Lack of prayer shows complacency in the now. And if we're complacent in the now, then we believe we can provide everything for ourselves. Why would we need another light in the distance if we're the light ourselves? That's what sin does to us. It makes us think we can provide for ourselves. Anna's worship revealed where her hope lies. I want to paint this illustration just before I close. I'm hoping it makes sense. I want you to imagine this stage is your life. I know there's lights on right now, but I want you to imagine it being completely dark. Okay? Maybe over here you have your family and you have your friends, you have your hobbies. Back here, um, Jesus, he's over here somewhere, if you're a believer. He's on stage. He made it. You have other things you like all scattered around. Stage is dark. This is your life. You have one light right here that you can shine. Where are you going to shine it? What are you going to shine it on? My point is this, where you shine that light reveals where your hope is. And it's the light, as we see back in Romans 4, the light is, the fa is faith that reveals where our hope is. So I don't, I don't know what you have scattered across the stage. We all have a lot of things. But as believers, we're called to shine our light on Jesus and lift him up. Like Simeon and like Anna did. Earlier, I defined hope as anticipating a future that is better than the present. But actually, you can argue that that's a worldly definition of hope. I think I left a part out that I need to add. You could argue that that's just wishful thinking anticipating a future that's better than the present based on what and this is the distinction i want to make 
Biblical hope does not rely on circumstances, but relies on the promises of Jesus. That's how we know our hope is certain. Wishful thinking or optimism is hoping to receive that specific Christmas gift that satisfies you or that concert that you waited in line for would, would deliver, that it will be the time of your life or the, or the medical scans that come back, just hoping that they come back clean. There's nothing wrong with hoping in those things, but that's worldly hope because they're based on circumstances. Biblical hope rests on a person who has fulfilled every promise he's ever made. Isn't that encouraging? He fulfilled the promise of being born in Bethlehem of a virgin. He fulfilled the prophecy of the suffering servant. He provided a sacrifice once and for all. For you and me. For our forgiveness. And by faith, we get to live with him and know him forever. But we wait and hope for another fulfillment. And that's his return. And as the worship team comes forward, I want to end by reading a couple verses to reflect on. Out of the book of Titus. It's one of my favorite passages in scripture that defines really the gospel. And how we're called to live. And how we're called to wait. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice the contents of those verses. What's happened in the past? God's grace has appeared. That shapes how we're called to live in the present. But it doesn't stop there. It helps us see the future and to wait for the future and to wait for our blessed hope that's not in any circumstance or ourselves, but in a person who is God himself, Jesus. It's the only hope that will ever satisfy. So in just a moment, we're going to have a chance to respond through song and also through partaking of the Lord's Supper. I want to leave you with one question to reflect on. It's very simple. Where's your hope set? can be asked another way. What are you waiting for? For the game tonight? For something later this week? For a trip next year? To have your first kid? To get married? Those aren't bad things. But is that your ultimate hope? Where is your hope set? We find in the last page of Scripture 
the most satisfying promise there is in Scripture. John's revelation. Listen to this guarantee that Jesus says. Five words. Surely I am coming soon. I can't tell you what soon means. Only he knows that. But what a promise. Surely he's coming soon. We're about to sing that truth. Christ was dead. Now surely he's risen. Yes, he's coming back again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we give you all praise and honor and glory. God, help us to set our hope on you and what you've done and what you're doing and what you you will do, what you've promised to do. And that's to come back for us, to redeem us once and for all. So, Father, this Advent season, as we move into what we would call a busy time, God, give us moments of rest. Help us to fix our gaze, to fix our eyes, to prepare our homes in a way that lifts you up and not ourselves. God, the love that you have for us is indescribable. But we praise you for it. And we thank you for being our blessed hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen.